we acknowledge the Wajok people and the wider Noongar community on whose country we meditate and conduct our ceremonies tonight. title of tonight's talk is The Zen Group of Western Australia. Who are we? Where do we come from? And what are we doing here? Uh, please sit comfortably. Uh, who are we? It's a koan in itself, um, you know, with an individual face and uh, a collective face, and those two faces of the koans deeply related. Straightforwardly, we're, we are a strange assorted bunch of, uh, from many walks of life, uh, drawn to meditate together, often for reasons that are obscure even to ourselves, uh, but surely deep down it is to realise our true nature and to find release from suffering for ourselves uh, and other beings. We are surely seeking something more comprehensive and inclusive than our own self-centred preoccupations. Uh, we seek, consciously or unconsciously, an end to suffering, our own and that of others. The Zen Group of Western Australia has sat for nearly 40 years and Buddha, Dharma uh, and Sangha are all very uh, interwoven in uh, our group. Uh, I am because you are. We are, each of us, all of us, because of others, because of multitudinous factors, universal, planetary, environmental and familial. Not least the sometimes embarrassing fact that we are the outcome of our parents having sex. Who are we? Well, we are a Zen group and small in the scheme of things and perhaps a little isolated out here on the rest western rim of nowhere. In terms of uh, size and membership, we could grow a bit um, and still maintain the virtue of intimacy uh, that we have. But even with a concerted membership drive, we are unlikely to become large. To use uh, Mary Ridwin's fine description, we are a cloud corner rather than a cloud centre. Cloud corners are much to be preferred. I think the cultivation of cloud corners, which are usually unencumbered by expensive real estate and towering hierarchies, is a very good idea. As a cloud corner, we travel light in the world, keeping our needs small and staying open uh, to the world. In this we are lay, uh, not monastic, and I am grateful for that. Lay traditions go all the way back to the Buddha, 
and although Zen comes down to us largely from monastic traditions, there are feed streams of lay practice that flow into ours. Being lay means that we practice the Zen way in the context of work, relationship, friendship, in the midst of the complexities of our everyday life. Traditionally, we practice like the lotus in the midst of fire, practicing and awakening ourselves and others in the midst of the passions, in the midst of the suffering world. What a grand and imprecise, um, uh, that uh, imprecise enterprise that is. Uh, wonderful, no safety nets uh, at all. Uh, just you and your engagement with the world as it is. The central problem with lay practice is the difficulty of not getting enough time to practice. Uh, make a vow to sit more, take every opportunity to sit, both solo as well in, as in retreat. Uh, if it takes an hour a day uh, to become uh, a half-assed piano player, how much time do you need to devote to practice to open your dharma eye and to deepen that experience uh, into your activity in the world? Where do we come from? What is our source and origin? Well, we sit on the country of the Noongar people who have lived here for more than uh, 40,000 years, maybe up to 60,000 years, and have developed an intimacy with nature that should be our guide and inspiration, both in our practice and in our lives. I'm grateful to Michael Wright for providing the opportunity for us to sit on country, enabling us to experience intimacy with country, to explore Noongar spirituality and culture unfolded over more than 40,000 years and to bear witness to the suffering of Noongar people because of the white invasion. Maybe our, origin is a, maybe our source and origin is the advent of Homo sapiens. Uh, I always have this image of uh, Zen before the Buddha, you know, people sitting in caves and it's three o'clock in the morning and uh, someone just moves out to the front of the cave and is sitting there uh, before the embers of the fire and looking out over the darkened landscape and doing what we call uh, Sazen, uh, being wholly there uh, for it. Uh, what was our source of origin, the birth of the planet, or the Big Bang itself, or what was there before the Big Bang, if anything can be conceived of as being there before? What was there before time and space? When I asked my granddaughter Charlotte this, she said, fairies! <laughs> so this is a kind of way of re-enchanting, uh, re, is it yeah, re-enchanting the mystery? Fairies! <laughs> um, yeah, so what is our source and origin? 
In terms of the Zengriff of Western Australia, the ancestry we share, um, we share a beginning of ancestry with the ancient seven Buddhas, which would be to say that we are older than the universe existing, if we can talk of existence at all, in mythic time or timeless time. Shakyamuni, infinitely varied and unique, was the seventh of these ancient Buddhas, their human manifestation. He lived from around the 5th to the 4th century before the Christian era and spent 49 years tramping the back roads of India, addressing whoever came before him in terms of their needs and aspirations. Uh, what was the teaching the Buddha taught throughout his life? That's an old Khan. And response? One teaching in response. He was just there for whoever was there before him. Whatever the question, he just responded to that. Um, was there in that empathic and inclusive way for that person with their question. The life of the Buddha is shrouded in legend and myth. Although most historians believe there was such a person, we know very little about the actual historical person. Following on from the Buddha, there were 28 generations of teachers down to Bodhidharma, who lived from 483 to 540. And he brought what was called Dhyana Buddhism to China, where it flourished as Chan Buddhism, through the teaching of a succession, actually a great crowd of grandmasters in the Tang and Sung dynasties between 618 roughly and 1279. And these include the sixth ancestor, Huaineng, Matsu, uh, Shito, Linchi, Dongshan, Nanchuan, Chaocho. <clears throat> the two surviving schools, uh, that, uh, which are Linchi and Sadong, uh, come to Japan. Uh, Linchi first, courtesy of the monk Myo An Esai in 1168. Uh, the Linchi tradition in Japan became known as Rinzai and the Sadong, uh, courtesy of Eihei Dogen in 1227, became known as Soto. In Japan, Chan Buddhism becomes known as Zen Buddhism. As it dies out in one culture, the spark of Zen leaps to another, from India, where it lasted a thousand years, to China, where it flourished for some 700 years, to Japan, where it continues to this day. In terms of the spark, uh, just before the advent of the 20th century, Zen came to the West and established itself in the US, Europe, New Zealand, Australia and a variety of other countries. In terms of the acculturation of Zen, uh, the first hundred years are said to be the most difficult. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I remember the Cha, what's his name? Chao N. Lai uh, was asked about what he thought, uh, the great Chinese diplomat was asked what he thought about the French Revolution, uh, which um, lasted from 1789 to approximately 1799. And 
Joe and I was heard to say, it's too soon, too soon to say. <laughs> this has got something of the spirit of Zen about it. There's no hurry in Zen. Significance of the French Revolution? Well, you know. <laughs> Significance of the Zen way in the West? Far too soon. Far too, too soon to tell. Our Diamond Sangha tradition uh, comes from Sanbo Kyodan, literally the Three Treasures Religious Organization, a lay Zen school derived from both Soto and Rinzai traditions. Uh, Sanbo Kyodan was founded by Hakuan Yasutani in 1954 when he finally gave up his membership in the Soto school and professed himself to be connected directly to Dogen. Sanbo Kyodan, our parent uh, school, is also called the Harada Yasutani School in reference to Yasutani's teacher, Harada Dayun Sagaku, a Soto priest who took up Koan practice with the Rintai master, Kogun Shitsu Dokatan Sozan, in order to see more deeply into his true nature and tirelessly deepen that expression through Koan study with his Rintai teacher. This move by Harada and his student Yasutani to take up Koan practice heals a division uh, Gento Sokuchu, who lived from 1729 to 1807 and was a Soto master, tried to purify the Soto school by de-emphasising the use of koans and subsequently koan practice largely died out within the Soto school. This was the situation that Harada and Yasutani inherited as Soto teachers and against which they rebelled. From them... Um, per medium of Aiken Roshi, we inherit the dual practice of Khans and Shikantaza, uh, which they taught. Uh, Hakuan Yasutani was one of Robert Aiken's teachers and his student Yamada Khan Roshi was Robert Aiken's main teacher, uh, with whom uh, Aiken completed Khan's study and from whom he received transmission. Diamond Sangha uh, grew up within uh, Sanbo Kyodan uh, as a confluence of Rinzai and Soto streams of practice, or if you prefer, a restoration of Sadong traditions uh, which interwove silence, illumination and uh, kinds. Um, the crisis came for Robert Aiken, who with Ann Aiken had established the, uh, the Diamond Sangha, which was a, a big and flourishing enterprise by the 90s with many, many teachers, a number of which had been appointed by Aiken Roshi. And Aiken Roshi and various other teachers in the Diamond uh, Sangha were recalled after Yamada Roshi's death to be actually checked on Mu. And uh, Aiken Roshi was a deeply modest man and uh, took this very seriously. But given that he had um, <laughs> appointed a number of teachers and established uh, a very, very substantial lineage, uh, he finally decided that returning to Japan to be checked on Mu was probably a bridge too far. So with huge respect and courtesy and probably taking weeks over it, he wrote a letter 
to say that uh, he wouldn't be doing that and that Diamond Sangha would continue as a, an well, a tradition which honoured its connections to Sambay Fiodan but was not actually part of it. It's impossible to conceive of answering the question of our origins without invoking Robert Aiken Roshi, who did so much to shape our way. Uh, he was born in Philadelphia in 1917 and died on August the 5th, 2010 in Honolulu, almost a decade ago. I want to take the opportunity to remember him and his achievements, without which we would surely not be sitting here tonight. Indeed, without him, there would most likely not be a Zen group of Western Australia at all. Roshi was one of the founding teachers of the Zen way in the United States and indeed worldwide. He was one of that first generation of American Zen teachers who did their early training in Japan, often with Japanese teachers who spoke little English and had even less understanding of Westerners. Nevertheless, these American teachers went on to pioneer the establishment of the Zen way in the West. As a significant, indeed venerable figure in all of this, Roshi was truly a founding teacher and we are his beneficiaries. It's hard to imagine how difficult it is to establish the way in a new culture as he did. I think a large part of establishing a, a way in a new culture is not to reflect on the fact you're doing that at all, but just get on with the business of everyday uh, teaching. And he stayed close to the ground. Uh, you could phone him at any reasonable hour of the day and he would pick up the phone. He didn't have a secretary to shield him uh, from calls. Uh, and he would just, Roshi here! And then you could talk to him. He was available. Uh, you know, he had a, his life in a way was an unremitting struggle to attain the way, often in the face of ill health and self-doubt. I actually think this made him especially empathic to the difficulties that his students faced and made him a better teacher uh, for that. The way of Zen is slow. Uh, 25 years on move for Aiken Roji. I remember him telling a member of this Sangha um, who was still working on Mu after 21 years, he said, I bet you won't beat my record. <laughs> it gives something of his humour. He thought of himself as a foot soldier in the Dharma, but he turned out to be a great general. Of all the founding teachers in the West, Roshi is the one who most ardently advocated social justice, especially advocating for gay people, women and native Hawaiians, and he did this throughout his life. He was one of the original founders of the Buddhist Peace Fellowship. Social activism was at the core of his life and of his teaching. He stressed the ethical aspects of the way through the precepts and his book, The Mind of Clover, is the finest book we have on the precepts from a Zen Buddhist perspective. Roshi brought the bells and equipment for our group in Japan and brought them to us as hand luggage on the plane when he came out to lead uh, his first session with us in 1985. Um, yeah, I remember him wrote, uh, getting out at the airport and he's loaded up with all these bags with bells in them. And uh, he said, well, you've got some stuff here for you. <laughs> um, yeah, and we're still using these bells uh, here. 
Cloud Bell in particular. Roshi led two sessions here in 1985 and 1987. In addition to session, he conducted Jukai for members of the Zen group of Western Australia, as well as a children's uh, ceremony here. Each child was given a, um, a exercise book. I remember going out to buy or find a news agent that had multiple exercise books that we could buy. And uh, he just wrote at the, uh, at the beginning of the exercise book, who am I? And then, the, the, then the, the children could actually add their experiences. And I remember my daughter adding her uh, response to the Khan, who am I? Uh, I am a book. I am a star. Very beautiful. Uh, and it, this children's ceremony says a lot about uh, Ekin Roshi. In 1997, he returned to give me transmission jointly with John Tarrant, who taught in the Zen Group of West Australia in 1986 and then from 1988 to 1997 and made an inestimable contribution to the way in this place. Um, uh, in a way, uh, Aiken Roshi and, and John played off against each other. I think John was doing some of his eatable um, stuff uh, in uh, being sometimes opposed to the way that Roshi would do things, but he developed a, a, a brilliant and very individual style. And these two streams, one from Roshi and one from John Tarrant Roshi, have helped to shape the group here. And I'm hugely grateful for John's contribution uh, to this group, which was immense. Uh, uh, nine years of coming, I think, twice a year, some years, and once a year on others. Um, yeah. I also want to acknowledge uh, Ian Sweetman's 10 years of huge service to the group um, here. Immense. And Mary Ridwin, who has been co-teaching with me, I, I realise now this year for seven years now, and I'm deeply grateful to her for making sacrifices and coming across Australia to co-teach uh, so brilliantly in this place. Uh, I have much to be happy about. The sutras we chant, the forms of our practice, the translation of our Cohen literature, all due to Robert Aitken. Uh, uh, the latter in collaboration with his teacher, uh, Yamada Roshi. In our dojo, we maintain most of the forms that Roshi brought with him uh, when he taught our first session in 1985. We are fortunate that he was careful to the point of being painstaking about form, and I doubt that he ever rashly discarded anything that he received from his Japanese teachers. At the same time, as he responsibly preserved the traditions he inherited, um, he was creative in how he presented the way and this most especially through his extensive writings, which include more than 14 books and numerous other publications. In our dojo, we use Roshi's classic introduction to the Zen way, taking the path of Zen, to introduce newcomers to Zen practice, and if we are a little further along, to refresh our own understanding. We also use Roshi's fine book on the precepts, Minds of Clover, as essential reading for students during Yukai. 
in terms of my own reading of all of the Western uh, traditions, uh, ours is poetically uh, and prose-wise the most brilliant. Uh, it's a tradition with every particle on fire. And believe you me, in terms of the Dharma, aesthetics really does matter. You know, Roshi's ear in the dedications, uh, which we chant over and over again, year after year, year and yet they remain fresh. Um, the Dharma is com communicated through rhythm. It's communicated through image. It's not just a matter of literally getting the translation right or creating uh, something virtuous and worthy. Uh, it's poetry in action. Um, when you work on koans, and the koan is beautifully uh, expressed poetically, by the time you memorise it and absorb the rhythm, uh, the Dharma is already dancing uh, as you uh, with the koan. Um, it's huge to have this uh, contribution. I am so proud and happy to be in this tradition, which is a tradition of immense hard work, but immense delight uh, in the way and its expression, in its fantastic maturity of expression. Uh, we are so fortunate. When it's dead on the page, it's dead in your life, I reckon. In 1959, Ekin Roshi and his wife Anne began a meditation group in Honolulu at their residence, which became known as the Kokoan Zendo. The community that gathered at this zendo on the suggestion of Yamada Cohen, Roshi's teacher, was named the Diamond Sangha, uh, partly after Diamond Head in Honolulu and uh, partly because of the Diamond Sutra. It's a combination of both. It's in, a, in a kind of strange thing, Diamond Head in Honolulu, on Oahu, near Honolulu, was named by mariners who saw the calcite on the beach and thought it was diamonds which is a very colonialist <laughs> view of that reality. Um, but in fact, the, for native Hawaiians, the shape of diamond head resembles the fin of a tuna, and the Hawaiian name is, reflects that. Um, so two different angles on diamond head here. The Diamond Sunker now has affiliate Zen centres in South America, Australia, New Zealand, the United States and Europe and elsewhere. Roshi loved to travel and to pioneer the way in remote places. And here we are. In Roshi's teachings, three things are immediately apparent. It's comprehensiveness, inclusiveness and generosity. He's simply not writing about Zen but conveying the essence of Zen Buddhism. He grounded his teaching, his teaching in the teachings of the Buddha, in the importance of ethical behaviour, especially as it is geared to social justice, conservation, and the preservation of this planet, the ground we share. He wrote, we are all, we are here together very briefly, so let us accept reality fully and take care of one another while we can. A practice is not to clear up the mystery, it is to make the mystery clear. 
He wrote, what is the essence, someone asked him, what is the essence of Buddhism? He wrote, said, nothing lasts and we're all in it together. We are all members of the same nose hole society. Wonderful expression of our humanity. Same nose hole society. So, what are we doing and what might we do? Uh, through our meditation and rituals, it seems to me that we're creating a groundless ground in which others may share, both now and into the future, in which we and those who may join us can meditate, awaken, and take their awakening into the world to touch, heal, and indeed save all beings. The deep nature of our practice is intimacy, and not just intimacy with what we like or admire, our practice awakened us to our deep affinity with nature and the need, indeed the imperative, to defend what is threatened, most especially in the unfolding tragedy of global warming. It's great to see members of our group taking loving action and following in Robert Aiken's footsteps in doing this work. I would like to see the Zen group of, the Western Australia, of Western Australia and the treasure of the Zen way made available as a resource for activists. This is something that we actually have to offer, uh, apart from our activism. To practice the Zen way is to draw on an inexhaustible source, uh, even as we get exhausted in the work. The practice of Zen helps in the face of conflict, reduces the possibility of burnout, and is a deep resource of skillful uh, means. Uh, thinking of Bernie Glassman's Three Tenets, for instance. Uh, uh, not knowing, bearing witness to the joys and sufferings of the world, that is being there for what is, and taking loving action. There's a beautiful expression of the same way. Um, I, I, I read in The Guardian something which has got apparently nothing to do with this and I hesitate to raise it, but I, it's in the last, uh, last week's Guardian, but it's doing solo retreats. Um, and it's felt incredibly important to, to add this. I mean, activism is really important. Um, personal practice, uh, we serve in many different ways. But this describes uh, going out into nature, um, not taking anything with you, uh, like books, uh, even leaving a phone behind, if it's actually possible to leave a phone behind these days. Spending 24 hours with absolutely nothing to do. Um, uh, you make a circle of stones, this is very English, and you sit within the circle of stones and uh, you put your backpack <laughs> down and you put your back against a tree and you experience the exquisite boredom uh, which follows almost immediately uh, when you're you're after having your time structured minutely for years on end. And you simply endure with that boredom. And 
the, the man who wrote the article, which I can't even remember his name, talks about the experiences that flowed uh, from that. And I'm not even recommending necessarily to do Zazen. He said doing nothing. So maybe doing a very open form of shikantaza practice, you know, where, uh, which is where you're not striving for anything, you're just there. I don't know. I haven't tried it. I really want to try it. I really recommend that you give it a go. Uh, you need a guide, you need someone in a way to take you out there to find the spot. I was thinking of Manita, um, Pescal's Hovia Ashram and maybe some of the country around there, or Michael Wright may know of some country. But it would be a wonderful thing to do, and I think it's a practice that, can we call it a practice? I guess we can, uh, that you might want to take up. Um, uh, alongside doing sessions, uh, for instance. Look, there's so much happening in the group, both environmentally, in terms of precept sharing, in terms of writers' workshops, orientation workshops, informal discussion groups, sewing circles, uh, the activities of the council which shape our way and keep our Zen group of Western Australia viable and much, uh, much more uh, in the group. I love the fact that all of these streams flow. Um, the, I was thinking informal discussion groups that grown up as well among people. All this is great. I would wish for its endless continuation. Uh, it enriches the group. Uh, all of this enriches the group. Uh, no end. Um, I love working with my co-teacher, uh, Mary Ridwin. It's a source of great joy and satisfaction and I look forward to her coming over here to do her everyday Zen uh, program in March. Uh, that will be um, provide me with a short sabbatical, um, which will extend a little bit beyond Mary's uh, visit, in order for me to do some writing and to catch up on my reading. Which uh, I've got a volume, a pile of Zen books like this, all unread next to me, so it will be a chance for that. But uh, I wanted to turn this over to you to ask you. So, how is this? for you, the unfolding of the Zen Group of Western Australia, and how might it unfold uh, in time? How do you see the group? How do you see it unfolding? Um, uh, yeah, how might it unfold in time? Your suggestions are really welcome, and uh, this is an opportunity to express them. Thank you, everyone.